0: a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lamise Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'm talking to Raymond C. Kuo about his new book, Following the Leader, International Order, Alliance Strategies, and Emulation, which was published by Stanford University Press in 2021. This book explains how and why nations come to pursue particular alliance strategies. Raymond, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Great. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure
1: thing. Currently, I am a political scientist at the RAND Corporation. Uh, Prior to this, I was a tenure track professor at SUNY Albany and Fordham University. I've received my PhD from Princeton University. And prior to that, I'd worked in foreign policy for uh, the Democratic Progressive Party of Taiwan, the United Nations, and the National Democratic Institute.
0: Wonderful. So my first question to you, Raymond, is how did you come to write this book?
1: Oh, so I think two things came together. One was that uh, I'm Taiwanese American, and so I always was curious about how do small states, you know, how do they swim amongst much larger fishes? How do they develop security for themselves when they're kind of dependent upon other countries like the United States, uh, Russia, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, going back, let's say, Imperial Germany to provide security for them to some extent? How do they form their alliances? Uh, and so... A lot of the theories that we have about alliances are built on great powers, you know, the the, the the most commanding states in the international system. And I've always wondered, like, is that really true? Do they really apply to small states? And then, secondly, um, I remember one of my advisors, uh, Jake Shapiro, said, "Just take this status set of alliances, make pretty pictures, and then just stare at them." And so that's what I did. I had I printed out a whole bunch of pictures. I put it up like, um, you know, like a detective, I guess, or the, the criminal, like putting up all the pictures around them and just stared at them. And my wife would come in and be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I've just been told to do this. And <clears throat> some patterns just jumped out, like the fact that we would think that alliances should be really carefully tailored, right? You are a country, you're worried about being conquered or destroyed. And so you want to very, you know, you want to make sure that, all right, if I'm weak in this area, my ally will offset that. If I'm strong within this area, I can offset my ally's weakness. And so you should see really specifically tailored alliances. And yet, that's exactly the opposite. We see that most states glom onto the same type of alliance strategy and alliance structure. And so that was really puzzling. If you're a small state, you should want tailored alliances, but something is causing you to override that, even causes the great powers to override that. I think my best example of this is, you know, after the United States and European countries established NATO, Stalin in the Soviet Union said, you know what, I can do the same thing too. And so he created the Warsaw Pact. And it wasn't like he said, okay, Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Soviet states, we're different from the Western countries. We're going to have a different structure. Essentially, he kind of copied and pasted NATO and said, here's the Warsaw Pact. We're done. Uh, which is a really odd thing to do.
0: That's... That's a fantastic um, explanation for how it is you came to be interested in this topic, and you know I think one of the things the book does really well is it clearly clearly explains this conventional thinking on alliance strategy, um, and it tells us why this conventional thinking is not satisfying, and I think that's where your con- your notion of the dominant alliance strategy uh, comes in. Um, So I wondered if you could spend a little bit of time just describing your theory for us. You do a really good job of merging literatures to arrive at a very sophisticated theory uh, about emulation of this dominant alliance strategy. So can you describe this theory for us and the diffusion mechanisms that you talk about in the book as well?
1: Sure. Um, I guess on a non jarkney level, I think about it like the movie Mean Girls um, that you have this central grouping of plastics. I think that's what they're called. Um, the, 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 most socially important valid, socially validated group within the, within the, say the system or the school and everyone else, if they want to be cool, they have to be like them. Uh, and so that's the basic idea that, uh, after a major war, it tends to kind of clear away the field of alliances that after world war one, world war two, uh, going back the, um, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, uh, you're just kind of wiping the field clear of alliances. And so you have kind of the world, the security world de novo. Uh, And the state that won that war, the new hegemon, gets to set the terms of the new international order. And so in this, say, in the case of World War II, uh, the United States looks out and says, okay, we're going to have to gather some partners to work against or counter our most important threat, in that case, the USSR. Uh, So... The United States gathers together a number of European nations. They create NATO, and then that becomes the core alliance. And other states look at that core alliance as one of two things, or both things simultaneously. One, it's the mo- it's the furthest, most credible commitment you can get because that is the hegemon, the most powerful state in the co- in the world. Uh, allying with other powerful states, they're not going to be able to extract a greater commitment from the hegemon or any other state as that grouping. Secondly, there's also issues of status. Uh, if you want to look like a sovereign state, if you want to act like a sovereign state, well, you have to do what they do. Um, it's kind of, uh, uh, you know, you follow the, 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 the highest social status country and you get emulation. So through both of those dynamics, smaller secondary countries are going to want to emulate what the core alliance does. And that produces a domi- single dominant strategy for the entire system.
0: Fantastic. Um, And, you know, one of the things that I really uh, liked and enjoyed about reading um, theoretical discussion is that, um, you know, it's it's counterintuitive, but once you read it, it's really it's quite compelling. Right. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about what are some of the alternative explanations for alliance design um, and what is it that you think they get wrong?
1: Sure. So I think the most obvious one is the tailoring idea that you just would want to very specialize each one of your your security commitments. And I think just empirically, we just don't see that. You know, the Arab League looks like NATO, which looks like the Southern African development community. And there is no reason for any of these these alliances to look like each other. And yet they do. And the fact that it spreads out uh, to cover on average about three quarters of all alliances seems really odd. Um, You know, maybe this is, if if this were just kind of a funny little thing in the corner of the world, it wouldn't matter so much. But the fact that it becomes almost a characteristic of the international system is, I think to my mind, pretty surprising and kind of cuts against that literature. Um, There's uh, what I call hegemonic imposition, just get powerful states saying, do this. Um, And yet uh, I think historically we can look at the concert of Europe, which had denser, uh, Institutionalized alliances, kind of similar to what we have today, and immediately following that, the Bismarckian alliance system of realpolitik, balance of power, very uh, loose, uh, limited institutions, very fluid alliances, and yet in both cases you had five great powers. In some of the cases, like they're the same great powers, and yet you get two entirely different alliance systems. Uh, that shouldn't, that sh- sort of uh, the continuity in terms of the number of powers should produce kind of the same alliance system, yet it doesn't. I think lastly is common threat. Um, And it's kind of hard to figure out what single common threat could cause 75% of states to want to adopt the same type of institution, uh, uh, institutional strategy or design. And in fact, you know, in a lot of cases, the threats are each other. And so you would expect tailoring against your opponent's kind of weaknesses and strengths. And yet we still don't see that. I think the US, sorry, the Warsaw Pact and the NATO example earlier kind of gets at that.
0: Great. And, um, you know, the book really gives us a lot of evidence um, in favor of your theoretical framework and, you know, evidence that pushes against uh, these alternative explanations. You know, you you show us um, evidence from really rigorous statistical analysis and very rich case studies as well. I'm hoping we'll get a chance to talk about um, each bit of your evidence in detail. Uh, But first, Uh, Do you mind uh, telling us why you chose this empirical strategy where you combine statistical analysis with case studies um, and also maybe talk a little bit about what your research process or your data collection process looks like?
1: Sure. Uh, So the project is transhistorical in nature. Um, So you're looking at broad patterns in history, which I think can say a lot about our you know, present policy to, uh, concerns and dynamics we have today. But the problem is, if I were to stick with just qualitative or quantitative uh, approaches, you kind of miss, either you miss the big picture for looking at the nuance, or you miss the nuance for looking at the big picture. So I think combining the quantitative and qualitative uh, approaches, that really gets at Helps get at both sides of this um, about uh, of this empirical task. So the quantitative stuff in particular is just looking at the overall pattern of alliances that we see. Is there such a thing as a dominant alliance strategy? Does it characterize whole swaths of history? And if so, we should be able to see it, um, and we should be able to systematically track it. And I think that's what the the quantitative analysis does. Uh, and I, I draw primarily from uh, Ashley Leeds's uh, set, The oh my God, it's ATOP data set, the Alliance Treaty Obligations and Provision data set. Um, but the issue is that you know, these broader patterns can mask a lot of, I think, detail and nuance. And I think a, a particular understanding of how is it that you get these broad patterns from microdynamics? And so that's what the case studies are for. Uh, and in particular, that was just a lot of fun to write. Um, you asked about like what the process is. Mostly it was just, Going into archives, reading as much as I could, and then hopefully gleaning something out of it, I think, but also being fairly systematic in tracking what I thought were the main variables and, and seeing how they progressed over time. Uh, but it was, honestly, it was a pleasure to actually read through the details of, and, and the kind of correspondence of people at the time, making these decisions and really putting yourself in their shoes and trying to figure out, okay, this is where they're coming from and why they approach things, uh, why they approach decisions the way they do. Um, I often think that in international relations, but I think even more importantly, international or even more specifically, international security studies, we tend to focus again on the great powers. We tend to assume that's the whole um, that's a whole kit and caboodle right there. Uh, and so digging into archives and saying no, here's what the Pakistanis were thinking. Here is what the uh, the Z- Zimbabweans were thinking. And trying to understand alliance decisions from their perspectives was one really important to me. And then two, I think much more empirically rich.
0: I. I- couldn't agree more about the focus on great powers and international relations and international security more specifically. I think in my own work, I've also sort of tried to shift attention more, kind of reorient our our attention towards the global South. Um, But so I'm hoping that we can talk about, uh, you know, each of your empirical chapters in uh, a little bit more detail. And I hope that you will sort of feel free to be a little bit bit more kind of expansive uh, here. So, the statistical evidence that you uh, provide in chapter three mm-hmm. uh, is really very, very thorough and very compelling. Um, can you describe some of the tests uh, that you did in that chapter? Sure thing.
1: Um, so uh, I think I approached it. <laughs> sorry, this, it's been a little while. <laughs> so <laughs> um, so I approached it uh, y- using answer i think three broad questions first does emulation actually occur are we is the core alliance in any way like say nato actually related in any way to the arab league or the southern african Deve- development committee is the fact of the core alliance adopting a specific type of institutional structure is that also emulated in the other in every other alliance or most of the other alliances in the international system secondly uh, testing the actual causal mechanisms. Is it about credibility? Is it about norms and standards? Uh, do those actually drive uh, the, uh, the the correlation between an uh, alliance design, or is it more about uh, state power or hegemonic imposition? And lastly, is this a matter of social dynamics? Do we actually see that as this as this dominant form spreads that it has increasing compounding social effects. Um, and so for all three, you know, I find pretty clear evidence that one emulation very much is occurring, that uh, if the core alliance say NATO is densely institutionalized, multilateral, most other alliances will also be the same. If the core alliance is as it was in, say, uh, in, in Europe, I'm sorry, uh, in the middle of the 19th century where It's very loose and fluid. Other states, uh, other alliances are going to be the exact same way. Um, Also find that credibility really drives packs that if you've reneged on alliance in the past, you'll have, you'll be actually be much more likely to emulate because you want those signals of, I am a good, credible actor. You can trust me. I know I screwed that guy over earlier, but I'm adopting this design so you can trust it. I I follow the the, the standards of the international system. Similarly with the norms as well, that uh, uh, I am following these international standards and norms, and therefore I'm a good social or international actor. Uh, And lastly, that yes, that as the dominant uh, form spreads, more and more states are likely to glom onto it or coalesce on it. It's a matter of social weight and social proof. Um, It's to some extent... Well, it's ideational. It's it's divorced from the materialism because everybody else seems to be doing this. I should do it too, not because it's necessarily beneficial for me, but because they must be onto something that I'm not, or that there must be something valuable about the social weight itself that causes everyone that's causing everyone else to coalesce in that same sort of design. And so, yeah, you know, the the um, the, empir- the sorry, the quantitative analysis goes through regressions and then spatial econometrics and a whole variety of different tests just to make sure
0: am I doing this right?
1: And I'd like to think I did.
0: I think given the sort of wealth of robustness checks that you present uh, in this chapter as well, the readers can fa- can feel fairly confident <laughs> that, that you know in your in your findings. Um, so this statistical analysis in the book is followed by a set of cases that um, span sort of historical and more contemporary periods. Uh, And I want listeners to know that, you know, these cases are very, very readable and they're also really interesting in their own right uh, as well. So let me ask you about the first case study, which revolves around the dual alliance in 1879. Can you tell us a bit about this alliance um, and what it is that we learn from an analysis of this case?
1: Sure. So the dual alliance uh, was formed after the Franco-Prussian War, essentially prior to the, uh, the Austro, sorry, I can never get this right, the Austro-Prussian, Austrian-Prussian War and the Franco-Prussian War. uh, Germany was just a whole bunch of small little principalities and a confederation. It was uh, broken up and just these little small buffer states that uh, Austria, Russia, France, Uh, the UK to some extent had kind of created there to prevent war. The Franco-Prussian War in particular allowed uh, Prussia to become the dominant German state that became Germany. Uh, And so Germany or Prussia defeats France, the preeminent military power of its time. It definitively makes uh, stamps itself in the middle of of Central Europe. And if you know the kind of iconic picture of The declaration of the German Empire, well, it's done in Versailles because they had, well, frankly, crushed the French so much that they were saying, we're going to take a baller move here and declare our German Empire, the thing that France has never wanted, in the seat of French emperors. I'm like, well, that's pretty, pretty amazing if you can do it. Um, And so up until this time, Bismarck in particular, as a a German chancellor, had been very savvy in, in trying to maneuver Prussia into a position where it can become the dominant German state. Uh and had, in a lot of cases, violated norms of cooperation and communication between Prussia and the other foreign and the other major powers. And so now in this post-war environment, he has to figure out what to do. You know, France is really pissed off at you. Everybody else is not exactly happy with, with, with what's happening. Plus, you just defeated Austria like four years before. So what do you do? Well, <clears throat> you try to demonstrate that you're a status quo state. and You create an alliance to help prevent uh, coalitions of states against you. And so he turns to the, his former adversary, Austria, and says, hey, we're German. We're, we both speak German. Um, <clears throat> we have a lot in common. We're both stuck in the middle of Europe, and we're threatened on both sides by Russia and France. Let's get together. And so they make the uh, dual alliance of 18, uh, 1879 between Germany and Austria-Hungary as the cornerstone of their security.
0: Wonderful. So what do we, uh, what do we learn from sort of this, this analysis uh, of the dual alliance and how does it, <laughs> it just shed light on your theory of... Um, uh, you know, related to emulation and alliance strategies.
1: Yeah. Um, so I think the, in, the important thing for, ha- the, the reason I, I put this particular case in is because uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it's about great powers, that great powers themselves, even when they create the standard, can't escape it. That, And it's, you know, they should be the ones that are able to escape it most easily and yet they don't. Uh, so why is that? Secondly, <clears throat> that it's uh, a case that takes place during, where the dominant alliance was fluid and realpolitik and stabbing people in the back was kind of expected. And yet even this really thin alignment for lack of a better term, even that somehow spread and became the dominant form. And so I think in the two sort of many cases within the, uh, Chapter, the Three Emperors Alliance and the Reinsurance, uh, that's in 1881, where Germany got together with Austria and Russia, and also the Reinsurance Treaty in 1887. We see the fact that Germany puts uh, Austria Hungary on a pedestal as their central security commitment. And as a result, because of that binding, nobody else can come in and break that binding. So in the Three Emperors Alliance, Russia is constantly asking Germany and Austria Hungary, hey, how about we all have a security agreement? They didn't know about the dual alliance. The dual alliance was secret. <laughs> and Germany and Austria-Hungary keep saying no. And the reason why, even though Germany was attracted to this idea, it's like, great, we could actually have a, or I guess, a trilateral security agreement where we all defend each other. The problem was Austria-Hungary kept saying, no, no, no. We are your top commitment. We have this dual alliance treaty right here. If we have a treaty where we all defend each other, what happens if Russia and us, what if we go to war? Who are you going to side with? You've picked us. You have to stick with us. And so ultimately, the three emperors alliance, or sorry, the dual alliance kind of formed an upper bound on what the three emperors alliance could do. You couldn't get it ever get higher than that because, well, Germany had put Austria on a pedestal. Similarly, in the Reinsurance Treaty uh, in eight, six years later in 1887, uh, Austria-Hungary is out of the three emperors alliance, and Germany and Russia are trying to figure out a way to Stabilize their security relationship. And so Russia's saying, oh, Great, we no longer have Austria-Hungary in here. They were the one making all the trouble uh, six years ago. So how about we just form a defensive alliance, just Germany and, and, and Russia? And Bismarck again said no, because for the same exact logic. In fact, he took out his copy of the dual alliance and read it, the secret dual alliance that Russia was not supposed to know about, and read it to the Russian ambassador, saying, like, look, this is what our treaty says. We have to defend Austria-Hungary. We can't do something. We can't write something that uh, will potentially support you against them. The best we can do is not exceed this limit. And so, even here, you're seeing the great powers failing. You know, especially because these treaties are secret, right? It'd be really easy to stab each other in the back, and yet they don't because of the social dynamics and the social constraints that consistency imposes.
0: So uh, for your second case, you discussed the uh, Manila Pact and the uh, Baghdad Pact during the early Cold War era. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk us through what is going on uh, in those cases?
1: Sure. I, I suppose I should have mentioned earlier, the way I kind of envisioned the international security system was that you have three different types of states based on their relationship to the core alliance. You have core states. Um think about the United States, NATO members, you have secondary states. You can think of Japan, you know, not a member of NATO, but connected to a NATO member. And they're driven by those credibility concerns. Um, is my alliance anywhere near as good as NATO? And because, you know, at the end of the day, if someone forces a choice on NATO, uh, on the United States, do you pick NATO or do you pick Japan? Well, you're not part of the plastics. So the U.S. is going to pick its core grouping, and you're kind of left out in the cold. And then, lastly, the peripheral countries, which I imagine we'll get to in a a bit, um, those countries that are really outside this overall network, uh, you're not uh, you're not part of the core pact. You're not part of the second. uh, You're not secondary alliances or kind of indirectly related to the core pact. You're just fully outside. And when those countries emulate because they are concerned about um, status and sovereign sovereign status and being seen as sovereign nations. So in this case uh, with uh, NATO, CETO, and CENTO, we've got examples of secondary alliances. Some of the members were part of NATO, UK, France, but most of the countries and the ones that I focus on are outside of that. Uh, Pakistan, uh, Australia, Thailand, um, (coughs) countries, uh, in and around the Southeast Asia and the Middle East. And so we're seeing this same sort of diffusion. And what's notable about it is, is if we believe in hegemonic position, the United States is super powerful after World War II. It can impose whatever it wants to do. And yet, it's really reluctant. I mean, maybe this is an American, like a kind of a consistent thing you see in American foreign policy, where the U.S. likes to reserve policy latitude for itself. And so it's deliberately not trying to impose any sort of NATO model on these countries. I believe Dulles, in the Cedo negotiations, asked the delegations not to call it Cedo, just to call, not to call it CETO because he said it sounds too much like NATO. Which I guess I can understand, but it also seems really petty.
0: <laughs> so, just for the benefit of the listeners, uh, what does Cedo? Uh, you Ooh. know, what is Cedo incento?
1: Sorry. Yes. Uh, You had mentioned the Manila Pact. That's um, it's the same thing as the CETA, which is the Southeast East Asian Treaty Organization uh, formed in 1954 following uh, World War Two. And after uh, France was kicked out of out of, I guess they called it Indochina at the time, uh, Vietnam, (laughs) Uh, and grouping together uh, together. France, the United States, the UK, Pakistan, Australia, and a, bu- a bunch of other uh, US allies into a multilateral agreement focused on keeping communism out of Southeast Asia. Uh, you mentioned the Baghdad Pact. Uh, that's CENTO, the Central Treaty Organization. Uh, the US was not part of this. It was in a, uh, they, they called, uh, I think Eisenhower said that they were a member in all but name, but it was primarily led by uh, the United Kingdom and included. Uh, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, and Turkey. Um, So in this way, you would have kind of the ringing of the southern border of the USSR in these alliances as a way to contain uh, the USSR's influence.
0: Thank you. Uh, so um, you were just about to tell us uh, how it is that your analysis of uh, these two alliances provides support for your uh, argument about concerns relating to credibility.
1: Right. And so it's in, in both of these alliances, you know, the U.S. is partially a member of CENTO. It's not a, is a very much a member of CETO. And it is avoiding emulation. It doesn't want to create a NATO-like organization because it says, essentially, NATO is special. Um, and... <laughs> It's also possibly expensive from a policy and the political concessions. Uh, We don't wanna do that with you. To which case, uh, the regional states say, hold up, we're not special? Um, What do you mean? Uh, You're making these commitments, you're making, uh, we want you to make symmetric commitments to us as you do in NATO, because that's the way that we know you're serious. And so in both uh, the Millil pact and and the Baghdad pact, the regional members asked for uh, emulation of NATO's Article 5. That's an attack on one is an attack on all. They wanted to have an integrated command, much like uh, uh, to have a single American commander be in charge of all NATO forces, uh, as, or, sorry, of all alliance forces, as you see in NATO, and also to have a secretary general and a secretary position position, uh, sec- uh, Permanent bureaucracy, a secretariat, to manage NATO affairs, and so the regional states were kind of hit or miss in, six, in their uh, in getting some of these. They were not able to get the article, me, not able to get the Article Five commitment uh, in either case, nor really the integrated command. But they were able to upgrade certain things like the having a secretary general and having a secretariat. So the critical thing, though, was that these gaps were viewed by regional states as a sign of American non commitment or lack of commitment. Where <clears throat> I think there's a, there's a quote in the book where um, the CETO members are saying, to, essentially saying to the United States, look, look at the Baghdad Pact. They got started a year after us. And yet, They're further along in terms of institutional development, getting closer to that NATO standard than we are. This is a pretty clear indication that you don't care about us so much as you care about the Middle East. Uh, Similarly, you'll see uh, complaints from these regional states that, well, you're really just interested in NATO. You're really not interested in us. You just kind of want to have us here, but we don't really trust your commitment because you're not willing to agree to the same sort of strategy and institutional design. Normally, when we think about international, uh, the literature international security, we tend to think that strategy and design don't matter so much as, you know, did I deploy troops here? Did you give me funding? And yet, in this particular chapter I show, especially for CETO, it was getting more funding than Europe was. And yet, that didn't matter to them. It wasn't so much the money. I mean, to some extent, I, in mother research, uh, I find that giving somebody money is, can, can be a way to fob them off. Uh, they want to know you have the political commitment. And how do you know the political commitment? It's not necessarily through money. It's through making equivalent guarantees to your core alliance and everybody else at the same time.
0: It's fascinating and and very, very persuasive. Uh, So for uh, your third case, you look at South Africa uh, during, or sorry, excuse me, Southern Africa during the post-Cold War period. Um, so, how does that case differ from the other cases uh, that we just spoke about, um, and how does that again sort of contribute support further support for your theoretical argument?
1: Sure. I think first off, I think this was the most fun to write. To write. Um, I just really had a lot of fun writing this one. Um, in part, uh, you know, we're we're now fully into the peripheral side of the international security network. We're talking about states that, especially after the end of the Cold War, Russia. China, the United States certainly just didn't really seem to care about. Um, there's this, I think there's a statement in uh, for the, in the Southern African Development Committee, SADC, where I believe it was the the chairman was saying like, look, we're going, Southern Africa is going from the periphery to the periphery of the periphery. It's just kind of receding further and further into the internet, in the international system. And so that's, you know, for personal reasons, rather important to me, um, both being uh, being Taiwanese American, my wife is also she's from Bangladesh, and so small states. How do you demonstrate that you have value? How do you demonstrate that you are sovereign and worthy of sitting at the table? Uh, and this particular chapter was the uh, way to get at that. Um, how do peripheral states <clears throat> leverage international standards and norms? in their own uh, alliance strategies and in their own foreign policies. And so this chapter really tackles uh, kind of the debate between Zimbabwe and South Africa over leadership of post-Cold War Southern Africa, um, which, <clears throat> excuse me, as I said, just a lot of fun to write. Uh, I did some interviews with uh, uh, some of the, the drafters of SADC, um, of the, of the, the, the drafts, drafts of the charter and also the mutual defense treaty that was eventually signed in 2004? Three. 2003. Um, and it's just great to understand their perspective on things. That in the Zimbabwe case, they really wanted to take leadership and they liked the informal, loose network, loose, uh, uh, thin institutionalization because it gave them, uh, because Robert Mugabe, uh, Mugabe could uh, trade upon his reputation as a leader of, quote, unquote, Black Africa uh, against apartheid South Africa, white Africa. Um, Whereas uh, South Africa and Nelson Mandela, they really want to have this NATO model of institutionalization and uh, uh, trying to take leadership within the region through institutional emulation of NATO and the other major alliances in the international system, uh, and so <clears throat> talking to some of the the drafters of these documents, it was pretty clear that you know they had taken Europe as their kind of north star. Right, this is a continent that is secure after a devastating 20th century, after I guess centuries of civil war and conflict. This is a this is a continent that is secure in itself, and. Highly developed, and if we want to be like that, if we want to look like that, and then we should act like them. We should create um, a multilateral alliance that you know has a secretariat, uh, brings us all together, have a mutual defense pact. <clears throat> um, even though Europe and Southern Africa share absolutely nothing in common on those dimensions, like Europe got together in under NATO because of the USSR, Southern Africa who's there, especially after the end of the Cold War. Europe, really rich, can pay for the secretariat. Uh, Southern Africa needs the funding from, I think, the Europeans and maybe a couple other countries for 80% of SATICS funding. Um, It's just in entirely different circumstances, yet, uh, again, coalescing on that same dominant strategy because of the symbolic and status benefits that it provides.
0: So, uh, you know, just really fascinating cases, all three of them. Um, And I wanted to sort of emphasize that I also really appreciated how towards the end of the book, uh, you come back to statistical analysis again, um, and you really look at the implications of the dominant uh, alliance strategy for alliance failure. Hmm. Um, can you tell us uh, what it is that you find in that statistical analysis?
1: Sure. <clears throat> you know, a lot of the the, the preceding argument, the, the preceding chapters, it could all just be in people's heads. You know, like we think that there's a standard um, <clears throat> and You know, going back to Mean Girls, like whatever the plastics did, we think that that's definition of cool, but it might not actually be a definition of cool, right? It may actually be just fluff and fads and trends that have no deeper meaning. And so this chapter was really important to me that the dominant alliance strategy, the standard that it represents, actually has an impact on... Uh, things that we care about. And so in this in this chapter's case, it's alliance failure. And you know, we think that alliances, <clears throat> you want them to, you, to some extent, want them to be stable. Um, you want to have the regularity of a secure relationship. I think to some extent, for, you know, if amongst states, but also, you know, sure, amongst people. Um, <clears throat> and so, If the standard is actually true, if it actually empirically exists, then we should see the more the dominant alliance strategy is out there, the more emulation there is, the less failure there is. Uh, Just because states want to you know, uphold the standard that the standard demonstrates credibility, that it demonstrates sovereign status, and so you hold on to that those sort of ideational uh, goals and benefits. Um, <clears throat> and so, in this chapter, I go through uh, four tests looking at uh, alliance failure, and I find that you know the more the dominant strategy is there, uh, if you have a dominant strategy alliance, you're much less likely to fail. I think it, on average about twelve percent. Um, if the uh, the more prevalent the dominant alliance is just within the international system, the less likely alliance failure is to occur. I think in the counterfactual, I do I run a couple of simulations, and it says that if no alliances uh, follow the dominant alliance, which, excuse me, by definition can't occur, but if no alliances uh, followed it, uh, emulated it, you would have about 30, a 33% failure rate. So a third of the alliances, or actually a little bit more, would fail. Uh, and that's just enormously unstable. But if you have a hundred percent emulation, your your failure rate drops to two percent. Um, so it's a the I think just emphasizing the importance of this um, of this standard of these sort of ideational factors in affecting you know, things that materialists often really care about, like whether or not your alliances are committed, whether or not they will fail. Do they have these sort of security expectations? and Will they last? I think. The one other data point I'd like to share is about alliance management institutions, that the tailoring literature that I'd men- mentioned earlier thinks that, okay, we have alliances <clears throat> and we have these management institutions, and generally speaking, having institutions, having coordination should reduce alliance failure. And I make the note that that's actually not entirely true, that it only those institutions only matter, they only reduce failure if they're believed to reduce failure. If we think, however, that institutions are just ways to trap each other, then we're going to look at offers um, of institutionalization with a lot of skepticism. Uh, I don't think it made it into this book. In the Bismarckian chapter, there was a whole section on Gladstone that it really hurt me to have to cut out. Uh, Gladstone was the British Prime Minister when um, uh, Chancellor Bismarck was the, well, the German Chancellor. And while Bismarck is out in Central Europe creating all these sort of loose, fluid, realpolitik alliances. Gladstone is in England and saying, hey, you know what? We should get the concert of Europe back together again. Let's get the band back. Let's have this densely institutionalized system where we all talk to each other and we can make collective decisions that are beneficial for uh, the entire European continent. Um, And by extension, the world, because this was the the height of uh, European imperialism. And you know, the the standard theories of tailoring alliances and institutionalization would suggest, yeah, that sounds good. You have a credibility a credible commitment problem, institutionalization is the way to go. You have uh, issues with side deals, go public. And this is everything that Gladstone says. And you would think Bismarck and his other the other European leaders were like, Yeah, I get that. Turns out no. They looked at what Gladstone is what he was doing, and they thought, huh. He's trying to get one over on us. I don't know how he's doing this, but this institutional setup he's talking about, he just wants to trap us and get leadership. Um, and so I think that and that's indicative right there of institutions only do what, they, what we think they do if they're believed to do so, if they're uh, embedded within this normative environment. Outside of that, they can actually have the opposite effect. And that's uh, part of what the, the statistical analysis here shows.
0: I just want to stress for uh, listeners that we've only really been skimming the surface uh, of these various empirical chapters. There's obviously a lot uh, more uh, and so much more rich detail uh, across all of these chapters. Um, But I want to move to policy implications. So one of the great things about this book is that it speaks to current debates about U.S. foreign policy, Um, So I wonder, Raymond, if you could uh, speak to us about what the implications of this research are for how the United States ought to orient itself vis-a-vis Asia and specifically how the U.S. uh, can and should respond to the rise of China. Sure thing.
1: Excuse me. So there's been a debate within foreign policy circles about um, should we be adopting you know, should the United States be adopting a more extensive, more institutionalized, uh, further security commitments as a way of retaining American leadership in the international system, or should it kind of revert to a more transactional international, uh, sorry, transactional foreign policy approach, um, one that harkens back to Bismarck and realpolitik? And so, to some extent, I, I in my mind, if um, uh, if you know the sort of international relations paradigms, you have the institutionalists and the liberals on the one hand who talk about coordination and institutionalization as the way to go uh, and you have the realists on the other hand some of them uh, I, I shouldn't paint a broad brush uh, but you have some of the realists who think that it's all about power <clears throat> and realpolitik and stabbing each other in the back um, and that the only interest that we have or the and the only cooperation that we have is created by our common national interests. And as soon as those stop or the, we find the edge of those common interests, we just stop cooperating. Um, and so the book in particular, and I was actually just chatting or I guess tweeting uh, with Emma Ashford about this, who tends to view, I think, if I understand her correctly, tends to view alliances and uh, American foreign policy in the more realpolitik way that, you know, we draw the realists tend to draw a lot of examples from the bismarckian era or eras when the us was frankly more of a well there's a swear word but like a like just a, a kind of a jerk on the international scene uh, so nixon is a very clear kind of example um, <clears throat> paul post has a great typology about this i can't repeat but there you can look him up and there it is um <clears throat> and so there's a selection issue here if we're only looking at examples from eras where realpolitik dominated of course we're going to find that realpolitik is the way to go but if we're going to look if we're going to draw examples from eras where there was a lot of institutionalization then we're going to think that institutionalization is the way to go and right now we are in a heavily institutional for better or worse we're in a heavily institutionalized world and i think one of the major implications that comes from the theory is that trying to shift from the, the integrative world into a realpolitik world comes with a lot more costs than we might than the United States might normally think of. So for example, let's say for example the United States decides to renege on its agreement, uh, its its alliance with South Korea. Um, in that case, uh, in say a realist framework or most of the other theories that we have, they would say, well, that sucks for South Korea, but nobody else should be affected. In the real world, according to my theory, everyone who has lower rank than South Korea should be really, really concerned about what this implies for their alliance. If you're not as high as South Korea, well, you should, and the US is willing to renege on them, they're probably willing to renege on you too. And so in uh, 2018, 2019, Donald Trump, uh, cancel what he called war games with South Korea in order to curry some favor with North Korea. And as a result, we, we uh, on Twitter and a number of places, uh, national security professionals said that they were receiving calls from Central and Eastern European countries asking, wait, what does that mean for us? And on, at first glance, it shouldn't mean anything. You know, The U.S. decides to cancel military exercises with South Korea, What should Central and Eastern Europe care about it? It has nothing to do with them geographically. They're not engaged in that theater, but it really does matter to them from their social status and their ranking within U.S. foreign policy priorities. If they think that South Korea is higher than them and the U.S. and Washington reneges on Seoul, they really have to be concerned. And so in this case, Analysts and researchers who say we should go towards more transactional foreign policy, I'd respond that yes, there's a possibility there. There may be benefits to do that, but we should also be aware that there are actually much, much larger costs than we typically realize. We can't look at our uh, alliances in isolation from each other. We really have to think about them as part of a ranking or part of a network uh, driven by status ranking. And are you willing are you really willing to like sacrifice all the other lower tier alliances for, in favor of getting just a single benefit or out of one relationship? I think that's a big question right there. Sorry, you had asked about China as well. Um, and so I think uh, a similar extension can be made here that China tends to pursue a, uh, I think, a Patricia Kim uh wrote a piece yesterday or two days ago in Foreign Affairs saying that uh China looking at the United States and seeing how it's it's um it's tightening alliances with South Korea, Japan, Australia, India excuse me, it may react or respond to this by creating alliances of their own. Um, and my response to that is it may. Uh, but it's gonna have a hard time doing that because if it wants to have credible alliances, it has to emulate the U.S. standard, which is NATO, or the global standard, which is NATO. Uh, China really doesn't want to do that. You know, it's one alliance is with North Korea, and it's not exactly heavily institutionalized. It's really kind of an outlier for being bilateral, not heavily institutionalized, fairly little cooperation. It's mostly, a, in some sense, a, a vehicle for economic and like military exchange, like, you know, actual military hardware between China and North Korea. Um, If China wants to take an organization like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization or some other kind of body, multilateral body, and turn it into more of an alliance, it has a really heavy lift. Uh, Does China want to be giving NATO-like commitments to these countries? Uh, Does it have an interest in doing so? Does it have the ability to do so? These other countries, would they be a... uh, a weight on China, dragging China into conflicts that they just really don't care about. You can think of like central uh, Central Asia and and the, the kind of territorial disputes over there. If China signs a defensive agreement with them, a la NATO, wouldn't they be just be pulled into that? Uh, also, you know, people have talked about Russia and China kind of becoming more and more closely aligned. The question I have, and that's possible. I haven't. I need to look into it more. Uh, but one question I have is that Russia is probably the entrapper. That relationship. And so it's difficult for me to see how China and Russia could create an alliance that is itself as credible as NATO, which is kind of who they'd be facing off against anyway. Uh, either NATO on the West or the, the Panoply of US alliances on the East. Um, so in terms of China, I think they have a heavy lift they want to institute if they want to create alliances. I think this also says, however, that the US has an opportunity here as well. That if it wants to contest Asia, then it really needs to provide a NATO-like commitment to Asian countries. That, you know, it's all well enough to say, you know, uh, invite uh, Prime Minister Suga and and, um, uh, President Moon Jae-in to the White House as as the first sort of summit meetings in uh, the Biden administration. That's fine. It's good. It's good signal. It's good to have um, the Quad. It's uh, good to have AUKUS as, as, I hate that acronym, but it's good to have AUKUS as kind of a, uh, a, uh, as a, a signal to Asia. But nothing replaces a formal NATO-like alliance to say, look, we've been distracted by the Middle East. We've been distracted by Europe. We are here for Asia. And in order to do that, you really have to say, we put you as equivalent to Asia uh, to Europe. Asia, we put U.S. Cleveland to, to Europe. And how do you know that? Because we're going to give you a NATO, a NATO in Asia.
0: So the book obviously has, you know, these very clear and important policy implications moving forward as well. Um, but Raymond, we've taken up a lot of your time. I just had uh, one final question for you. Um, now that this book is done, uh, what do you plan to work on next?
1: Oh, uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think. The book is macro-historical and transhistorical, historical I think, in framing. Although it does get into a lot of detail, I think, I hope. Um, it is macro-historical. I'd like to focus more on applying some of the lessons from the book, whether it be the theoretical, empirical lessons or methodologies, and apply them to more, uh, for lack of a better term, day-to-day policy. Uh, so focusing on, say, how does the United States take this idea of a NATO in Asia and actually implement it? How can it upgrade its alliances, its hub and spokes alliances with the Philippines, with South Korea, Japan, its kind of informal alliance with Taiwan, and make them into institutions that can solve some of these intra-allied concerns about credibility? Um, Where do we see the international system going next? Is China actually going to be able to create a alternative system, kind of like how the USSR did in the Cold War, or is the United States going to be effective in preventing Beijing from creating standards and uh, promulgating standards of their own, uh, such that it challenges the ideational ideational foundations of U.S. leadership in the international system?
0: That sounds like a great project or set of projects. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation, Raymond. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really had a lot of fun.
0: The book is Raymond C. Quo's Following the Leader International Order, Alliance Strategies and Emulation, published by Stanford University Press in 2021. Thank you for listening.